from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But know this, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we know as Peter described, the end of all things is at hand. Since your ascension into heaven, we've been living in the last days. We would ask for your spirit to encourage and empower us to hold fast to what is good, to hold fast to your truth and to your way of life, that we may bring you glory and be your witnesses to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, exciting announcement for you guys today, and it's an in-person live announcement. Here we go. Uh, Past couple weeks or months, um, we've been looking for a new women's ministry director. Teresa Grun, uh, not Grunwald, Teresa Stonecipher uh, has moved to the children's ministry director, and so the, she vacated the women's ministry director position. And so we have settled and found an amazing opportunity of equipping, being equipped by Michelle Moore. So here's our new women's ministry director, as and her husband Mike. Uh, They've recently come here, but we thought we'd give her an opportunity to share with you uh, how the Lord brought her and Mike here to Christ Community Church and and the vision that the Lord's placed in her heart to disciple the women here at Christ Community Church. Michelle. Thank you, Patrick. This is on, right? Yes, it is. I have some notes here. Thanks for that introduction. And um, as Patrick mentioned, Teresa was doing an amazing job in the women's ministry, and so I want to Give a shout out to Teresa for all the work that she did do in the women's ministry before she transitioned over into the children's arena. And I really appreciate um, all her support, the the, uh, help that she's given me during this transition, and I'm in her debt. So, Teresa, if you're out there, thank you so much. So, before I just say a few words, um, uh, actually, we all know that saying, it's darkest before the dawn. And some of you know that Mike and I went through a season of, of challenge, of darkness, when we moved here from Albuquerque last year. Um, we pulled up stakes pretty quickly for a job offer for Mike, and we came here in the middle of winter. I think the morning we left, it was 81 degrees in Albuquerque. When we came here 14 hours later, it was 21 degrees. Um, so that was our first uh, a wake-up call. But in addition to that, we were pretty much alone. We had no family or friends here. We were in a totally unfamiliar place, not knowing you know, where, to, where to go, what to do. And worst of all, the home that we had purchased basically started falling down around us as soon as we moved in. So we knew very quickly that we would have to move again. And so we basically decided to leave our, everything in our boxes boxed and live out of those boxes until God provided a way for us to leave that home. It was a really really challenging time. Jeff's going to talk this morning about challenge and opportunity, and all we could see was challenge. Every day was a struggle. Then one day I picked up our mail, and I saw a postcard in the stack with a picture of none other than moving boxes on it, which were the bane of my existence at that time. And I couldn't understand how my name was on the back, because nobody knew we were here. Maybe three people knew we were in Idaho Falls. And this postcard on the back is clearly addressed to Michelle Moore. So I thought it was very interesting. 
And I read on the front, moving is hard, but finding a new church is easy. Christ Community Church is a great place to meet new friends, find needed encouragement, and discover God's plan for you. Welcome home. And it was like a balm to my soul. It was like God had sent us an engraved invitation to try out this church. You know, sometimes he whispers and sometimes he shouts, and that was a scream. So we, plan, we made plans to visit that next Sunday, and from the moment we entered the doors back there, so many of you in this room made us feel completely welcome, and as, almost as if you had been waiting for us to come. And God began to show us that even though we didn't have a house, we had a spiritual home. And even though our earthly family was not around us to support us, we had a spiritual family that we could lean into, and it was such a blessing. And during that season, he started to plant the desire in my heart to serve this particular body. But of course, I had no idea when or how that would happen. And so when the opportunity came, I just decided that I would walk through that door with faith and let him do the rest and trust him with the outcome. My vision for the women's ministry here at Christ Community, I hope, is God's vision. To see his daughters of every age and station of life discover, develop, and deploy the gifts that God has given them for his glory and his purposes. And it's so wonderful to be a part of a church that encourages and equips women to do exactly that. I'm really thrilled to work with this particular leadership team, and I'm very humbled to work shoulder to shoulder beside the amazing women that are already in ministry at this church. So ladies, I look forward to growing in number and being a light to the community and spending a lot of time together in sweet fellowship and study and together becoming more like Christ. Thank you. Okay. We're going to pray for them if you will join us in prayer here. Uh, Father, we just thank you that Mike and Michelle, that you brought them to us, to our church family. We, we are so grateful, so thankful for them being here, but also that you've given us as a church family to them. And so, Lord, we just pray the anointing of the Holy Spirit uh, would be upon them both and be upon Michelle as she ministers uh, with our women to equip them for ministry uh, amongst each other. And God, we just pray your blessing on that and just your encouragement for the women in this church through Michelle's ministry in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right. Well, we're excited there. We're excited for her to come on board. And uh, we thank you for just continuing to pray for our staff, for our elders, and just our continual uh, work and leadership. So I want to welcome you officially to 2022. At Christ Community Church, uh, so glad you're with us today. And over the next uh, couple of weeks, what I'm going to be doing is uh, taking a little time to just candidly talk about our vision, our direction, where the Lord is leading us as a church. Uh, in big picture terms, this week I'm going to be sharing with you some of the challenges, about eight challenges. I had originally written 16, but <laughs> I decided to spare you and just collapse those into eight challenges. And uh, so no, you won't get the rest of the eight next week. Uh, next week, we'll be, ta- we'll be talking about our upward, inward, outward mission. And I'm excited to share uh, that vision and our mission statement uh, with you and unpack that biblically. Uh, so be looking for that. I've had the opportunity over the last year or so to digest a lot of material predicting the demise of the church, the church local, 
vital, biblically-based gathering of believers in Jesus is surely going to meet its end. And I'm here to tell you that's wrong. I'm here to tell you that's exactly wrong because Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, I will build my church. He did not say the elders of Christ Community Church will build my church. He did not say your pastor, your senior pastor, or your worship pastor will build my church. He said that he would. And so reports of the church's demise have been greatly exaggerated. The church of Jesus in America, yes, we face challenges. Yes, we do. Every church in every time over the last 2,000 years has. But when we come across those challenges and those crises come to our doorstep, this is what God has called us to do. He has called us to view every one of those as an opportunity to do this. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So every crisis, every challenge we face is an opportunity for us to witness to the world the grace and the love and the truth of Jesus and his word. And so let me tell you just where I think we are in American history as the church today right now, sitting here, uh, right here at uh, 5742 South 5th West. I don't even know our address. I literally don't. <laughs> I know it's on our website. I don't even know what the name of this street is. I live on it, and I can't figure it out. But, um, but we're here. God has sovereignly put us here. And I'm going to tell you where we are as a church in history. American history, we have uh, ex- essentially experienced three Uh, great awakenings, three great awakenings. The first one was in the 1700s, okay? So the first one started, really began with the preaching of George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers, and of course, Jonathan Edwards. And that first great awakening was an explosion of spiritual hunger and thirst where people's lives were being transformed. And then as it kind of petered out, like as it sort of fizzled out at the end of that awakening, darkness began to come back into and resurface in our country. And so our country went through about 30, I would say between 30 to 40 years of intense darkness. Historians uh, disagree about the time frame, but about 30 to 40 years, maybe 50 years of just intense darkness right before the Second Great Awakening. And when the Second Great Great Awakening came along, that was another explosion, really, of evangelism and just a powerful expression of small group movements and home Bible studies, and so just another transformational experience in American culture. And that fizzled out, too. And then we went through what is called the the liberal theology era, where they had declared the Bible dead, The Bible was dead because they had proven that miracles do not happen. And so the church hunkered down, and the church became what what that era was the era of fundamentalism. And so fundamentalist churches arose, uh, fundamentalist missions training organizations arose, and what happened was those fundamentalist organizations, they saw it as their mission to safeguard the sacred. They saw it as their express mission to to save the Bible from those liberal theologians who were trying to destroy it. And they did. They actually did it. But then there was another period of intense darkness in American history leading up to the early 1940s, 1940s, and there was a guy named Bill Bright. And Bill Bright just had this great idea. 
Bill Bright thought, man, I, I know what I'll do. We're going to go to college campuses and universities, and we're going to preach the gospel to these young folk uh, in the 1940s, and I, he just needed to find a young, dynamic preacher, and he found a young man named William Graham, and I think history would agree he was the right guy, <laughs> right? Like, he was the right guy, so they found Billy Graham, and, then, and that began what historians call the evangelical age. That began the evangelical awakening, which ended probably unofficially right around 2005, So since 2005 to today, we have been in another interim period of intense, intensifying, increasing darkness. And it's picking up speed. And what is happening in our culture is the darkness is getting darker. The meanness is getting meaner. And so everything we just read in that passage, that Patrick just read in that passage, about in these last days, and this is what Paul is trying to tell us. He says, understand this. So he doesn't want us to be ignorant. He wants us to understand it. Here's why. Because if we don't understand it, we will not respond well to it. We won't be able to respond to it. And he says, so I want you to understand this. Hard times are coming, folks, and it gets worse before it gets better. And so what is our responsibility in this? As the church in this interim period, before God pours out his spirit again, and we pray in faith that God will send us another great awakening in American culture, if in his sovereignty he chooses to do that, in between, this is our responsibility, to stand firm on the truth like the old fundamentalists. But we're not fundamentalists. We're evangelicals. We want to share this truth. We want to tell people the life-saving message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And in addition to that, we want to pray not only for our culture, we want to pray for the next generation. In your prayers, pray for the next generation. Pray that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on a generation that will fundamentally be transformed by the gospel and the Holy Spirit. So in the meantime, you and I are going to face challenges. And those challenges are going to give us the opportunities to bear witness to the truth. So I'm going to give you eight today. Here's the first one. Challenge number one. It is to misunderstand the purpose of suffering and crisis. Now, if you have a false theology of suffering and crisis, what is a false theology of suffering and crisis? It basically goes like this. Every crisis that comes to my doorstep, like every twinge of suffering that comes into my life, God just wants to make that go away. Like he just wants to deliver me from that. Now, ultimately, that is true. Because in the resurrection at the end of the age, every problem you've ever had will go away. Every problem you and I have ever had, mentally, physically, financially, whatever it is, will be swallowed up in the victory of Jesus' resurrection, which we will partake in. We will participate in that at the end of the age. So yes, it is true, God wants to make all your problems go away. But before they do, (laughs) the Lord uses suffering, and he uses crises the crises that come to our lives, he uses that to form the image of his son in us. Because his son, who is Jesus in the New Testament? He's the despised, rejected, suffering servant of the Lord. You want to read about Jesus, the suffering servant? Read Yahweh's suffering servant passages from Isaiah 42 to Isaiah 61. 
Read those passages. You will get a Old Testament, an Old Testament description of Jesus as God's suffering servant who is despised and rejected of men. And Jesus comes, and in his first sermon, he stands up in synagogue, and he reads the scripture from Isaiah 61, and he says, today, this is fulfilled in your ears. Like, in your very presence, this is fulfilled today. And by the time he's done with that sermon, they want to kill him. Jesus' ministry in the world was characterized by his suffering, by challenge after challenge, and he met those challenges as opportunities. So God wants to form the image of Christ in us, and he also makes to, wants to make us useful in ministry to other people. Look how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 1, 4. Now, go home and read that whole chapter. It's very encouraging, but here's what he says. He comforts us, God comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflowed into our lives, so also through Christ our, our comfort overflows. So what does he say? This, this suffering was meant to overflow into our lives so that we look like Jesus in the midst of it, so that we show people the character of God on the cross, giving and loving and suffering unjustly. And he says, so when that suffering came into our lives, God, what he did is he, he raised the standard. He met it with his own comfort. And so the Holy Spirit's presence comfort us, comforted us in the midst of it. And then that made us useful for you. <laughs> like that made us capable. It gave us a sanctified empathy for you in your situation, whatever affliction that you find yourself in. So what's the opportunity to grow through crises? so that we, be, we can become more like Jesus Christ and useful ministers of Jesus' compassion to others. This is the opportunity that we have to be burnished, to be sharpened in our character, and in, then to be able to pass that comfort on to others. Challenge number two is the temptation to divide over issues that are not the gospel nor essential matters. This is the temptation of every church. This isn't unique to us. But it's the temptation to divide the body of Christ over things that aren't essential matters of the faith or the core message of the gospel, the core storyline of the entire Bible, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so if you go back to the Corinthians and you study their situation, just read the book of 1 Corinthians this afternoon. Take you a couple hours. But you can read it pretty briskly, pretty quick, and here's what you'll find, is that the Corinthians were doing this very thing. They were dividing over their celebrity pastors and apostles, and they were turning them, pitting them against each other, and they were dividing the church into factions around their celebrity apostles and their teachers, and, and making them rivals instead of brothers. And they were dividing over the rich and the poor. They were coming to these, what they call communion meals. And in the communion meals, uh, it was basically a potluck dinner with communion uh, kind of in the middle there. And what was happening is the rich, the wealthy would come and they would bring lots of food and the poor would have nothing. And the rich would just sit there just mowing, just putting it down. And the poor are just kind of sitting there <laughs> waiting for church to start. <laughs> and Paul gets this word, he hears about this, and he goes, this, what, what? <laughs> he goes, no, this is terrible, guys. Don't be doing this. 
This is denying the cross. To divide the body up between the haves and have-nots. And then they were dividing over disputable matters and hauling each other into court. Now, court back then wasn't like it is today. Court back then was public. So the courtroom could be a very public place right in the middle of the marketplace. And so these Christian people who had these domestic squabbles, they they were dragging their issues and airing the dirty laundry of the church out in public. People would walk by and listen to Christians suing each other. And Paul says, my goodness, may this never be, please. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I solemnly declare that all of you are to, degree, to agree in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. What is he saying here? He's saying that I want you to be united over the same convictions. The gospel is true. His word is true. Be united around that, right? Now, let me say this in defense of leaving a church. Because there are some illegitimate reasons to leave a church, lots of them. Uh, An illegitimate reason to leave a church is that someone caught you in sin and confronted you with sin, and you just took your business elsewhere. You just packed up your luggage and went to the next church, and you still got your luggage. I mean, you didn't deal with it. That's That's an illegitimate reason to leave a church. Another illegitimate reason to leave a church is if you have conflict with another believer, and instead of resolving that conflict through forgiveness, right, through forgiveness, you just leave. That's an illegitimate reason to leave a church. Now, there are some legitimate reasons. I can give you one. Uh, And that is that philosophically, you just are not on the same page with the way that church, the method in which that church conducts its ministry. So an example of this would be church governance. People have legitimately left our church because they came from a different church tradition. Now, if you are really, you come from a congregationally led church And if you don't know what that means, that just means that all the high-level decisions are sort of put out to the membership. There's a democratic vote, and then that's how they lead is through the democratic vote. We don't do that here. We are elder-led. We are elder-led and member-equipped. So so our leadership here is through the board of elders. We lead and set the direction and the vision and the priorities and and governance of this church. But another kind of church is Presbyterian government. So, if, so there are some people who have come from that style of government, and that's very top-down. That's not democratic at all. As a matter of fact, if you talk to a lot of Presbyterians, they'll say, man, I was raised in an environment where people just weren't, members just weren't equipped for ministry. Ministry was done by the clergy. And so sometimes you'll hear that. Well, we're not that governed that way either. So we are elder-led and member-equipped. Our job is to equip the members to do the ministry. I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. And so that's a legitimate reason to leave because philosophically you just, that's not a sinful matter. That's not being divisive within the body. That's just deciding, ah, philosophically, I just, I think it's congregational or I think it's Presbyterian, but we're somewhere in the middle. So if you hold to either extreme, you're fine. But if you hold to either extreme and you're not willing to submit to this system, you probably wouldn't be here long. So when I'm talking about the temptation to divide over issues that are not the gospel nor essential matters, that means that there is a great diversity within this body where people, if, listen, if you were king for a day, how much would you change? Look at this paint. <laughs> Should I have brought that up? Lean into it, <laughs> yeah, let's lean into it. So if you're mad about the paint, 
Some of you might be mad about the previous paint job. You didn't like the green, so you're still sitting there stewing. What I'm talking about is dividing over things that are not worth dividing over. They are not matters of sound doctrine, nor our essentials, nor the gospel. And so our opportunity is to show the world that there is one institution, one body that is unified despite the great diversity on the margins. The world is encountering systems, political systems, entertainment systems, all the rest, right? Institutional uh, government and media and social media and university systems. These systems are failing these people in so many ways. And wouldn't it be great if there was a place where they could come and see that amidst great diversity is this unity over this message, this unity over this mission. And that's our opportunity, is to bear witness to the unity in the gospel, the one faith in our one baptism. Challenge number three is the tendency to become ingrown. The tendency to become ingrown. What do we mean by this? Well, an ingrown church is an inhospitable church. It was the problem of the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They were inhospitable. They were not welcoming. They were exclusionary. And so here's what happens when we join a church. What happens is we, we come to a church and we like it. I mean, we, we go there and we think, oh, man, the people were friendly. That was really nice. I met some new friends maybe on my first or second visit there. And then we find out there's a membership meeting. And so we come to the membership class and we go through that and we become members. We sign on and say, yeah, I want to be a member of this wonderful church. And then we get to know some people. And then every Sunday, what do we do? We naturally, and you should do this. You should gravitate toward the people that you love and you've gotten to know. We want you to do that. But then what happens is over time, we forget what it's like to be a visitor, don't we? We forget what it's like to be here the first time and have no one say hello to us. And so what we need to do is not only gravitate toward our friends and experience the warm fellowship of the people that we've gotten to know, but folks, as members and regular attenders who call this your church home, we need to always have one eye out for the people who look new, and you can tell. We can tell who you are, by the way. Because <laughs> they're usually walking around like this, like, where do I go? Where do I check in my kids? We need to help them. And so would it be great if Christ Community Church were known as the friendliest church on the planet Earth? Here's our opportunity. Jesus wants us to be the friendliest, warmest, most hospitable place in the world. He wants everyone to have Michelle and Mike's experience of finding a church family on day one. And so Hebrews 13, chapter 2 says this, don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if Mike and Michelle were angels (laughs) and they're shaking their head? No, we're not. (laughs) But that visitor that, that you and I potentially ignored was a visitor from God. And now, because we were inhospitable to a messenger, an angel from the Lord, the Lord is snuffing out our lampstand. <laughs> that, that happens to churches. Read Revelation. Ch- uh, challenge number four, to mistakenly define ministry as only for the clergy. To make the mistake of defining ministry as being only for the paid professional. And so your leaders, let me tell you, your leaders here, I mentioned this before, Our job is to equip the saints for ministry. The Bible gives us this explicit mandate. I want to show it to you. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, he says, 
And God himself gave some to be apostles. These are the gifts he gave, leadership gifts. Some leadership gifts were for prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's own fullness. You see what the job of the pastor or the teacher or the leader is, right? So my spiritual gift is not doing the ministry. My spiritual gift is not being the women's pastor. I'm a terrible women's pastor, <laughs> right? I am a terrible women's director. I, there's lots of things. Listen, if I were to trade uh, uh, jobs with Teresa today, the children's ministry would implode within three weeks. I don't do that well. This is what I do well. So my job is to identify, is as a leader, to identify your spiritual gifts, to help you identify that and to help you discover them, de- develop them, and deploy them into ministry. And that's the leader's role. So our opportunity is to discover and deploy our spiritual gifts of ministry and to become a church where every member is a minister, where every member is a minister, not necessarily a, an official leader, not a deacon or an elder, but every member knows what their ministry gifts are and are plugging into the body of Christ with them to build up this body till we all reach the unity of the faith, the measure of Christ's own fullness. Chapter, uh, challenge number five, the challenge of consumer Christianity. The challenge of consumer Christianity. So let me sort of frame this. As citizens of the greatest, most liberating economy and governance theory the world has ever produced, America is richer, more generous, more innovative, freer, more egalitarian, more just than any society that has ever existed in the history of the world. And frankly, there has not even been a close second. You look at the second greatest economy to ours, it's China, they're not even a close second, and they'll implode within 20 years. That's a fact. I'm telling you, I know. You look at our European neighbors who have adopted since 1776, they've tried to adopt their own kind of democratic systems and are no longer monarchies. Listen, they're just, they're good knockoffs, but we're the original. We got it right. And we're not perfect. We're not perfect. We're not perfectly just. We're not perfectly moral. We're not perfectly governed. We're not perfectly free. True. But still, I think we're doing okay. I think mostly we're doing all right. Now, you and I have unique challenges in this culture. We're not the church in Ephesus. We're not the church in Smyrna. We're not the church in Russia. We're not the church in Jerusalem. We're the church in America. And so we have our own unique challenges that we have to address. As such, we are going to have the challenges that that are unique to our rich, prosperous, free, innovative, workaholic, leisure-addicted culture. And that's what it means to be the church in the U.S. These are the things, actually, we have to talk about and we have to address. And one of the things we have to address is this idea of consumerism. Now, listen, God made you to be a consumer. Read Genesis 1 and 2. God put them in the garden. He says, now, of all these things that I've given you, you are free to eat from every tree in the field, every tree in the garden, except for that one, right? So God made them to consume you are a consumer. That you are by nature. But you're also a producer. 
God also made you to steward your environment. He made you to work. He made you to produce something. And so when you come to church and you just adopt a pure consumer mentality, and you, view, you and I view the church as merely a, a business that's providing a product that we consume, that is the wrong view of the church. God has called us to plug in with our spiritual gifts to discover and to deploy them so that we can help build up the body of Christ. So fundamentally, you're not a shopper, and fundamentally, we are not offering you a product. Fundamentally, we're a family, and we're offering you membership in the family. So what's our opportunity? Well, to save a portion of what we spend and give it away to the poor, to the needy, to the less fortunate. And as a church, we do this every year. In fact, we do it throughout the year. And I love the generosity, the generous spirit of this church. As individuals, we also do it. And so you can find some some gospel-related charitable giving where you can actually make a difference in someone's life who may not even know that you ever gave. Only God in eternity knows. And when you write that check or you fill out your credit card, uh, there's a ministry that I support right now, and every time I fill out the credit card and give to them every year, I... I don't miss the money, but I always pray for the people that it's going to support. I always pray for the people that it's going to set free in the name of Jesus. And what that does is that dislodges stuff from the throne of your heart. God made you to have stuff. God wants you to have stuff, but he doesn't want your stuff to have you. And then the less fortunate, the needy. And so we resolve to become a contributing member of the body of Christ so that we can minister to the needs within the body and without. And so people who produce rather than merely consume, they end up with all kinds of neuroses in their life. All kinds. Challenge number six. Challenge number six is the temptation to exchange incarnational presence, which is gathering, for the disembodied experience of technology. The temptation to exchange incarnational presence, what, I, what I'm calling incarnational presence is just us gathering together in person for the disembodied experience of technology. Now, as you all know, I don't even have to tell you this, but COVID has fast-tracked in our culture this idea of meeting by video, like Zoom, on your computer or on your phone. And there are a lot of businesses that are saving a lot of money by doing this. They've discovered, oh, we were spending a lot of money uh, uh, flying our people all over the place. And we can have these meetings sort of by video. But the church, frankly, cannot do that. The church cannot do that because the word church means, in Greek, the word ekklesia means assembly. It actually, it literally means to, to call out and gather together. That's what it means. And it's a synonym for the word synagogue, which is the word synagogue, which means an assembly. And so the church, by, very, by its nature, by definition, the church definitionally is a gathering of local believers. That's what it is. Essentially, that's what we are. And so God has provided, God has actually called us to do essentially two things. He's called us to provide stability, and he's called us to act with agility. And so being a stable church means this, that the Bible is our foundation of faith and practice. The Bible is our sole rule of faith and practice, which means we're not going to change the contents of the book. We're going to preach them. We're not going to reinterpret them out of existence. And then the gospel is the central storyline that runs from old to new. 
So the gospel of Jesus is the central storyline. So we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to preach his word faithfully. And a church is called to provide its congregants that stable environment where the mission and the vision and the word and the message does not change. What God has also called us to do is be very agile, to be very responsive to the needs within our community. It takes a church that is stable but not stuck, a church that is rooted but not rigid, a church that is responsive to the needs and the pressure points as they emerge within our community and within Idaho Falls in our world. And the church has always been very good at this. The church has always been very good at staying essentially what it is and then actually being flexible and nimble so that it could morph into something that it, that where the gospel could inhabit culture. And so what's our opportunity today? Well, it's to hold fast to the firm foundation that we are a church that gathers for worship and spiritual growth and scatters to make disciples. That's our mission. While remaining nimble and responsive to the emerging needs and occasions Uh, and occasions to demonstrate the love and the mercy of God. What am I saying there? It just means we're going to remain grounded on the word and we're going to be very innovative when it comes to getting the gospel into the world. That's That's our plan. That's how God has literally designed us. In the midst of that, though, we do not want to exchange physical gathering with just live stream watching. Now, if you are indisposed or you have a physical issue or you have a sickness or you're on vacation, I hope you do make use of our live stream. If you're watching right now, thank you for watching. I'm glad you are. I'm glad you've turned it on. But watching is not gathering. God has called us to be the gathering. And there's something in the midst of the gathering that you can't get by just watching. Now, there are preachers and there are ministries during the week that I really benefit from. I listen to certain preachers and they just bless me with their teaching, but I don't know them. I don't have a relationship with them. They can't speak into my life personally. And so what we're saying is the technology is, a, is not a substitute, it's a supplement. And so what we are doing is we are going to lean in, not into sort of changing the definition of church. We're gonna lean into the definition of church as, as it was given us in the word And we have this opportunity also to be very responsive to the needs of our community. Challenge number seven, which I'm calling the idolatry of autonomy and independence from God's authority. (laughs) It's kind of a mouthful. But the idolatry of ancient Rome and Greece. Listen, if you were a pagan and you lived in Ephesus in ancient Rome or ancient Greece, this this is what your worship life would look like. You would worship what is called the pantheon, so you've heard of the Pantheon, right? So that's Zeus, and if you're a Roman, that's Jupiter, and then all these other gods, these official kind of gods of, of the state cult. And then you might have a private religion. In fact, you probably would have an ancestor worship religion where you would worship your ancestors, so you would have little statues that you could hide from Roman centurions, and you could hide them uh, under your pillow, and you would worship your ancestors and pray to them. And then you would also have to engage in what is called the Caesar cult, and the Caesar cult is the worship of Caesar as the divine son of God, uh, savior, the savior and the Lord of the world. 
And so if you wanted to come, for example, into Ephesus and you wanted to go into the Agora and you wanted to sell uh, your wares at your shop, you would have to stop by Caesar's temple first. You would have to burn your offering or your incense and then take the ashes from it, put it on your hand or on your forehead, and that was called taking the mark. And then you could go into the Agora and buy and sell. That's, if you were a pagan, that's what you had to do. Okay, so that's your worship. Now, the idea that you individually would be thought of as a god would not be on anyone's mind. You're, you're not an object of worship. The idea that you would be the source of all that is true, no one would think that. But today, we don't practice their kind of idolatry. We have a new kind of idolatry. And the idolatry in, in American culture, in modern culture, is that everybody now is their own god. Everybody now is a self-god. Everybody now is the decisive arbiter on what is true. And so if you ask me what I am, I can tell you what I am because I am the arbiter of the truth of that. Okay? Jesus doesn't agree. God doesn't agree that you are the final word on anything. He thinks he is. And so at any point where you and I disagree with what he has said in his word, we're essentially saying, you're not God anymore. I am. I am the one who says what I am, what my purpose is, how I was designed. And God says, that's not true. So what's our opportunity? To show grace and mercy to sinners and tell them the truth. To show grace and mercy to sinners and tell them the truth. Calling them to a merciful, loving God who corrects and restores us from death to life. What is merciful? What does it mean to be compassionate? Well, one definition of mercy or compassion would be to, to meet someone at the point of their need and to help them no strings attached, right? I mean, that's one definition of mercy. That's one application of compassion. But another application is to actually tell someone truth that they have to hear because their life is on the line. How cruel would it have been when Carrie and I had cancer for our physicians to have met with us and said, you know what? These are just bumps. You're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You're, you're good. Just go home, sleep it off. No, we would both probably be dead by now. Maybe not me, but definitely her. Okay, so that wouldn't have been compassionate or merciful at all. It is not merciful to withhold truth that will save someone's life. And so you and I have the opportunity as the church of Jesus standing on his word responsibly, responsibly and flexibly meeting people's needs, the needs within our culture. We have the responsibility before God to tell them the truth, but also to be compassionate and to be loving and to be kind and to be empathetic. Challenge number eight. Last, but certainly not least, because it's something that every person in this room deals with. It's something that we all deal with at some point, and that's just becoming adrift. And this isn't like someone coming up to you and challenging your faith and some radical atheist coming up to you and saying, you know, giving you like four arguments for why God doesn't exist, and then they talk you out of your faith. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the day-to-day drifting away. The day-to-day drifting away. That's what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard. 
so that we will not drift away. Ships that drift away will eventually sink or run aground. In 1 Timothy 1, 18, he says, Timothy, my son, Paul says, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you might fight the good fight, having faith in a good conscience which, you have re- uh, which some have rejected and have so shipwrecked their faith. How do you shipwreck your faith? How does it run aground? How does it sink? It's when we don't pay attention. It's when we don't fight the good fight. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a good fight? Have you? I've been in lots of fights. I'll spare you the details. I've been in some bad fights. You know why they were bad? Because I lost. (laughs) You know what a good fight is? It's the fight you win. Okay, the good fight is the fight. No matter how many bruises or cuts or knocked out teeth you have or bloody noses that you have, you actually came out on top. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is, hey, get up every day, be attentive, fight the good fight. You know what the good fight is? The fight, good fight is getting up every day and knowing, oh man, I'm gonna have to fight that same temptation. I'm gonna have to fight that same fight. But Jesus has, Christ has declared me the winner. He's declared me the victor. If someone came to me today and said, hey, man, we want you to, we want you, we're inviting you to be in the Olympics and the shot-putting, throwing contest. I would say, well, I have no experience whatsoever with shot-putting, but I'm game. Let's do it. And by the way, you're the winner. You're already the winner. I would say, great. Now, I would fight. I would throw the thing as if I were really competing, but it would only go about 10 feet. (laughs) The other guys surely could beat me in the contest, but here's what I know. Someone has already declared, at the end of this, I'm putting the gold medal around your neck. And so the Christian does not proceed to get the victory. The Christian proceeds from a point of victory. We proceed from a posture of God having already won the victory for us on the cross and in the resurrection. In the resurrection, you and I are in Christ. We have died with him. We will be raised with him. And so this is how we keep from becoming adrift. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. He says this, but as for you, Timothy, Paul says, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. So there's this issue of progress. Keep going. Continue. Knowing from whom you learned it. Verifying their character knowing the people who have taught you. Verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. Listen, acquainted is about all we can do on a Sunday morning. This is why from Monday to Saturday, we have to engage in discipleship ourselves. He says in verse 16, because all scripture is breathed out by God. If it's in the Bible, it's God's word. It comes from his mind and his initiative. And then he says, and it's profitable for teaching or instruction, informational, for reproof or for correction. That's disciplinary. If I hold false beliefs or if I have bad habits, the scripture can reform me. It has that power. And for training in righteousness. Paul told Timothy, he said, let the grace of God that saves you train you. You're not supposed to just be saved by grace. I hope you are, but you and I are also supposed to be trained by the grace that saves us for righteousness and godliness. 
He says that the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is he talking about here? He's talking about you and I being, being equipped, thoroughly equipped in the scriptures for a whole, complete life and for the ministry that God has called us to. And so this passage absolutely does not excuse our sinfulness. And I've had this conversation over the last couple years with people. People have said shocking things to me. People who have excused other people's sin and just said, well, he's just being authentic. Is he being authentic or is he being sinful? He's just broken just like the rest of us. Okay, let's stipulate. We're all broken. But the word of God tells us that the, the grace that saves us also trains us for godliness and righteous living. And so now, if God's inspired word is the means by which the Holy Spirit uses to reform me, to save me and reform me, Colossians 3.16 tells us how. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. How many of you brought a Bible this morning? Let me see it. You got it? Some of you are holding up cell phones, tablets, good. Now, if this were the first century and this were Colossae, none of you would have a Bible. Not a single one. The only person that would have any copies of Scripture would be your pastor up front or your apostle, whoever was teaching you. And the way that you learned doctrine and the way that you learned the contents of Scripture was through songs and hymns and spiritual songs. You would sing them. Nothing sticks in your brain like a tune. And so they put the gospel to tunes. That's how you learned it. And that's how it dwelled in you richly. And that's how it transformed your thinking and your life. So what's our opportunity here? Well, to remain rooted and grounded in the word so that we might become complete and whole equipped for his work so that we might be outfitted for life and for every good work he's called us to do. Amen? Folks, there are a lot of challenges we'll face. I haven't named them all, but we've got some. We'll have them this year and in the coming years, and God wants us to approach those challenges as if they were opportunities to witness to the truth of God's word, to witness to the community of his grace and his love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. God, your word just infuses us with confidence and faith. We thank you that we can ground our lives on it, that we can be rooted and established in it, and we thank you for giving us a mindset that every single crisis we face, every challenge that we face is an opportunity for us to testify about your love and your truth and also be conformed into the image of your son. And God, would you give us that resolve this morning? And as these things come into our path, Lord, as they come into the life of this church and us individually, Lord, would you just help us to testify well? Help us, Lord God, to point people to you in your glory so that we may make more disciples for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.